So we are looking at Acts chapter 8, and this has got some interesting things in it that we're going to sort through. And looking at the whole encompassing chapter and pulling it together, we need to refresh our minds of what God is doing here. He's doing something completely new in history, never done before, completely going against the the Jewish teachings and everything. I mean, it was all in there in the Old Testament. All the Old Testament points to him, but he's changing. He's coming to fulfill the Old Testament, and they didn't recognize that. So it's like a, the, the, uh, a huge, since the cross, a huge major change in history when that happened. And so throughout history, God has poured his blessings out onto mankind through the channel of his covenant people, Israel, the Jews, okay? And he said, you know, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So through that nation, through that covenant people, he has blessed many, but it was never intended that Israel would be a reservoir and store up divine blessings just for themselves, okay? Instead, they are supposed to be a funnel through which all of these blessings could be dispersed to a lost world. And we're seeing in Acts the historical account of how that started to just those floodgates, those dams started to pop open. And it's not contained anymore. And it's going out. It's flowing out. It's like a wildflower that's going We're finding out that it's very important that the church is holy and set apart. It's not a part of the world. It can't be. It's completely different. It's saved people amongst a world that is dying, the dominion of darkness versus the kingdom of God. And so it's got to act different. It's got to be different. It's got to stay holy and pure. How is that going to be guaranteed? Well, he can kill off everybody that, (laughs) right, make everybody really scared. Some were scared to join. Others were really saying, yeah, I just want to be a part of that. But what is the guarantee that the church stays pure? (sighs) I don't think there's been one. But we have through this book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, All of the behavior, all the actions, the things that happened through the power of the Holy Spirit that that got it that birthed this church and got it moving. And the main thing the power of the Holy Spirit does that when he comes and indwells believers is changed lives. And we're gonna think look at that as we look at Simon and look at the Ethiopian to see if there were changed lives, what's happening there. So Let's start with Saul, because as you know, last week we talked about Saul, and he stood on the sidelines and watched them just rage with anger against Stephen to the point where they drug him out and stoned him. He didn't get involved in it. He stood there, but we're finding out that he gave approval of it. Was he calm and collected? Mm, Okay, whatever, but something was going on inside of him because we find out now in chapter 8 that that man was the first real enemy of the church because up to this point it was only the apostles that were being persecuted now since stephen's execution it's just broadened and now just the regular believers women were being drug out and persecuted 
It was an extreme contrast between the intense hate at Stephen and what he was saying, mostly what he was saying, and against the, the, the beauty and the peace that was on Stephen's face when he went up to heaven. So Saul is the first deadly enemy of the church. And we're going to find out this next week in Acts 9, verse 16, that Saul was going to suffer far more than Stephen did for the sake of Christ. He says that to him. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 12, tells us that Paul, by then, has endured the emotion of facing death many, many, many times over, even to the point where he says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians... Um, uh, 4, 8, 24, 4, 8, 4, verse 8 to 12, thank you. Um, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul learned to live life facing death all the time. He was was ready to die all the time. It was far worse than Stephen's one time facing death with that. So Stephen's death was a catalyst for this whole persecution storm to just explode and ignite. And Jesus had told them in John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they keep my word, they'll also keep your word. So they were prepared for this, but they probably had no idea what it exactly was going to be like. So we have in verse 1 that Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. So they were spread. They they were scattered. And that word for scattered Um, is they began to go out and sow seeds. They were scattered about. And it's a scatter where you don't take someone's ashes and scatter them and they dissipate. It's a scatter where it's going to take root, a scattering like a planting that's happening there. Sowing seeds of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And didn't we know that that was going to happen? Right in Jerusalem, you will bear witness when you, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in all of Judea and Samaria. So that's the area that we're going to now. This is being fulfilled. Great persecution is making them scatter. We have to get outside our comfort zone sometimes, don't we? Because we just like to plop down and right there, right. Don't ruffle my feathers. Just I know what happens day to day. I can control this. Um, but, but if God's calling us to step out of our comfort zone, we really have to, it'd be wise to, to listen to that and be obedient to that because it can be great blessings that come from that. It says here in verse 2 that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. 
Why do they even include that? Of course they're going to bury him. But the point of this is that in ancient um, times, the Jewish law prohibited open mourning for someone who had been executed. And they had just executed him. They They said he's guilty of this, and they stoned him outside the city. So law said you couldn't mourn, you couldn't openly mourn somebody like that. So we are being told in, in the passage here that they, they, they had a funeral for him. And they lamented him out in public because they did not see it as him being guilty of doing something wrong. They mourned in their eyes the murder of Stephen. Okay. So in verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was on a rampage here with this. He could have maybe was stood there really composed at watching the stony of Stephen, but it's almost like his fury has been unleashed. He even claims, and it talks about himself in Philippians 3, that he was zealous in his religious faith. He believed that the Judeo views and teachings that he had in his rabbinical school were they were being thwarted by this Jesus that came, and he was just going to stand for the truth. And he sincerely believed he was serving God, so much so that he was going to destroy and even just be out of control with rage, okay? He's actually fulfilling Jesus' prediction in John 16, 2, that said, Jesus told them, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. I look at Saul here, Paul, because we know how the story ends with Paul. Sometimes that convolutes our thinking a little bit. But in this moment where Saul is just ravaging, he was was wreaking havoc. The word actually means an army coming in and destroying a city or a wild animal that's tearing at its meat. You know, it's just all this energy. He was viciously attacking the Christians. He was out to destroy the church, basically. And when we look at this, with knowing what history is going to unfold, it was a time when Satan and was fighting against God for the soul of Saul. Right? Really? I wonder how much... I mean, if we had spiritual eyes and could see the things that happen in the world, I think it would freak us out for one thing. We couldn't handle it. Otherwise, he would let us see some of those things. But I'm sure there was a spiritual battle, which God is going to always be the victor. But Paul, uh, Satan was just using Saul to utterly destroy. And it's like, what do we hear about? What do we keep reading in Psalm? You know, the enemy is out. For the believer, but what is God doing up there? <laughs> He's laughing, isn't he? He's laughing because he knows he knows that they're nothing but ants. Okay. Verse four tells us that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. There's God laughing. The very thing that Satan wanted in his persecution to destroy was actually flourishing, right? The very thing. The church wasn't destroyed 
but they were scattered, and where they went, they were, began to preach and everything. They weren't hiding out. They weren't fearful, shaking. They were going out into the, the countryside, outside of the walls of Jerusalem and the, the region of there, talking about Jesus. So let's take a look at, you know, where they're going. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So Philip is one of the ones who's dispersed out there, which is not the apostle because we know the apostles stayed there. This is Philip, who was one of the seven chosen to serve along with Stephen. He's in that group. And later on in verse 21, chapter 21, we'll we'll have Philip referred to as an evangelist. So Philip is a very important um, disciple here, an evangelist. And so he's going to Samaria, and he's proclaiming to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord together, right? Satan scatters and divides. What does God do? He unifies and he pulls together. With one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. And saw the signs that he did. And here's your battle scene right here. Verse 7. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. God's the victor here. But it's a battle out there. These evil spirits that had permeated the Samaritans for very, 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 very long time, and we'll get into that, they were, they were a dis- distressed people. And here it was, the good news of the gospel was reaching them through Philip. It was being spread out, being, being shared by others who have been s- scattered about. So it was Philip... We get some of his personality, and he was very bold to go to the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans, um, going back to the Old Testament, when we had the divided kingdom, and the north, northern kingdom fell, and there were some Jews that stayed there, and they brought in these Gentiles, moved in, and they intermarried. They weren't a pure Jewish line anymore, Okay. They were half-breeds. They were people who didn't hold to all the, the teachings of, of the Israelites in the southern kingdom and stuff. And so they were looked down upon and frowned upon, okay? Ezra 4 talks about how they even wanted, they offered to help rebuild the temple when the Israel, Israelites were going to build the temple. And they were rejected by the Jews. They ran them out of town, said, we don't want this. So what do they do, the Samaritans? Because they were really searching for the Messiah, the one true God. They were just not a pure breed, okay? They set up a rival temple. Well, they weren't supposed to do that, <laughs> But they wanted to serve God. How could they justify setting up a rival temple? They pretty much ignored the Old Testament except for the first five books, the Pentateuch. And so there were people who were a little bit lost. And in their, their attempt to do things, Satan was infiltrating them and just giving them a bunch of twisted stuff also, okay? But both the Jews and the Samaritans were looking for the Messiah. And remember... Who did Jesus go to? That woman at the well, what was she? She was a Samaritan, wasn't she? And what did he tell her? He said that he was the Messiah. 
So Jesus himself already breached over this boundary that was there, already has carved the way to say that it's just not for Jews, but it's for everyone. He's for everyone. So there are these miracles that were happening and um, casting out demons and, and, and healing people, and Satan's just really, really ticked off about this because he had held these people captive for a long time with some of their false, twisted beliefs, just like the Jews. Okay, And so there was much joy in that city. All right? The, the church is gaining ground. We're moving forward. It's a warfare. We're moving forward. Much rejoicing. Now think about this. Philip is involved in a woo, big-time revival. This is the Samaritans, all right? This is the Samaritans. And so when word gets back to Jerusalem that these Samaritans are becoming believers, there's a problem. There's a big problem. What? There's no way. Does Philip really know what he's doing down there? Well, let's see what happens. Before we go further and look at what happens, you guys know that the, you know, what happens. But before we do, let me just make, lay this little foundation here from Jesus, one of his parables in Matthew 13. Thirteen twenty-four. Jesus is talking about the parable of the weeds. He tells the disciples, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. And among the wheat and among the wheat and went away, sowed them. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Oh, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Least in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And they're, so they're all confused on this. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? What, this doesn't make sense. And so in, over in verse 36, he explains it to them. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of the sin and all the lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth. There we got it. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So there's going to be, Jesus told them there, that there's going to be intermingled in the church unbelievers. Okay? And it's really not our job to weed them all out. 
Um, we lay out worship services. We, we, we tell them that you can't take communion unless you're a believer and you've cleansed your heart. And, you know, pure worship really is just among believers. We cannot worship with non-believers. Um, but, but, but not to get hung up on all this stuff, okay? So with that parable in mind, let's keep going in chapter 8 of verse 9. There's a man named Simon. He previously practiced magic, and he made quite a living for himself with that, okay? And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest in Samaria, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They actually identified Simon as having the power of God. They were misunderstood by him. He was doing tricks with them. He was doing mind games with them. He was doing things that they were just in awe of, but they confused it with him having the power of God, that he was the great power of God. So here comes Simon, here comes Philip into town, and he's the real deal. And Simon is watching him, and he's thinking, wow. That is the real deal. How did he do that? I looked behind the curtain. It wasn't there. I looked in his hat. There wasn't the bunny in the hat or whatever he does. And so he's like, I need to get that to advance my profession. I need to figure out what's going on. So he's watching Philip. He's paying attention to Philip and everything like that, okay? Satan even today uses the magic arts. He'll be the false signs and wonders. Those things are going to happen. We already know that in the end times. There's going to be false signs and wonders that happen. Okay? It's going to make a, an appearance like people are being risen, raised from the dead. Will they be? Probably not. No, they won't be. Things are going to happen. That's going to, we're going to see things in the sky. It even talks about that. It's going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. So Satan is behind these lies and these um, magical things that kind of go ooh and ah, signs and wonders kind of, what do we, th- we know what it is, okay? But we see that Simon becomes a believer. Verse 12, but when he, they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom in the name of Jesus, they were baptized and men and women. 13, even Simon himself, here's three things, he believed and he was baptized And he continued to follow Philip. That's what we like to see. You believe, you become baptized, and you're a follower. Those are signs of a true believer. Those are basic outward things to do. But it goes past that also. Because a lot of people can say, walk an aisle, I'm a believer, be baptized, and hang out at church, and hang out at church, and learn Christianese, and all that kind of stuff. This passage is telling us there's more to it, though. Right? Um... Meanwhile, in verse 14, when the apostles back in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, oh my gosh, Samaria? Mm. Mm. They sent to them Peter and John. It's like, okay, we don't know what's going on in Samaria, but, but we better send some boys down there and check it out. So they send out Peter. They send out um, Peter and John. They head on out there. And they come down, and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, 
for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All right, this can be a kind of a confusing passage. Let me just throw some things in there that might help give you some more insight on what's going on. Great things were happening down there. I mean, demons were being cast out. People were joyful. I mean, it's like, whoa, what is, what is really going down there with these Samaritans? So they come down. To see if truly what was happening down there, Philip's work was genuine. And when they found out that it was, and when they were praying for the people, um, they prayed and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, these people were believers at the time of their conversion. But God, in this particular moment in history, and there's going to be one more, we have Pentecost, we have this one, and there's one more, where the people do not receive the Spirit because God is saying, I want to keep the church unified, and we're going to need some kind of an obvious evidence to let the church in Jerusalem know that these are believers also in the body of Christ. If the Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit at their conversion with Philip, it very well could have been that there would have been a separate church started, a Samaritan church. But the fact that the apostles, the Jewish apostles, Peter and Paul came down, and at that moment, the Holy Spirit was given to them, like happened at Pentecost, was the evidence that these people were also included into the body of Christ. Are you tracking with me on this? I see some furled brows. God is a God of unity, okay? So the bestowing of the Spirit um, as a gift because that's what the Spirit does. And what are our gifts for? To build up the body of Christ, right? It's a unifying thing. The Spirit, we are one in the Spirit. We're one in the Lord. This was a sign that they are included into the body of Christ. Galatians 3, 28 says... I don't know why I don't have it. I know why I didn't have it marked, because I had I had house guests, you know, 328, right? <laughs> Same reason I don't have my glasses on. <laughs> uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor fever, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The bestowing of the Spirit by these apostles was their saying, yes, these people are true believers. Okay, it wasn't a separate event of that. And it also is a point in history where God is moving it from Jerusalem to all of Samaria and Judea. And the next time we're going to see that is when it's going to be to the rest of the world. He doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't have to do that anymore because the point's been made that it is not just a Jewish, it's not just for Jews, okay? The church was growing rapidly, um, but there had to be a harmony. There had to be um, something that brought together, and it had to be a noticeable thing for people to see. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, 
Oh, did you just love Paul? So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, and we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all one made to drink of one spirit. This, this was a, a unified. Had that Peter and, and John not come down and did that, it could have very well, Satan would have snuck in there and said, well, you know, none of the, none of the apostles were involved in this, so we don't really know because it was just Philip. But they took care of that by having Peter and, and John come down and do this. Okay, if it's not clear, corner me later and we'll see if we can't hash it out a little bit more. So we have here, oh my goodness, this is so cool. Look at the Spirit of God is now there. People are just like, oh, uplifted and positive. And we've got the, five, we've got the nine fruits, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, fruit of the Spirit. Those aren't, those aren't flesh characteristics. Those are attributes of God that now indwell these people. And these people are actually, whoa, I have more joy than I've ever had before. This is the real deal. I love, I can overlook that thing. You know what? I have self-control in this area. You know, what a peace of my, peace. I, I'm just so at peace. This is, this is something that happens because those are genuine characteristics of God that a non-believer doesn't have. They can say, yeah, I have peace. It's not this kind of peace. So truly a change had happened to these people. And so here's Simon thinking, whoa, I need some of that. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying of of hands, he offered money. Hey, because he probably, money was a big deal. He could buy things. I mean, he was a very wealthy man because everyone worshipped him. Um, and I'm sure he did things for money. So it's like, oh, I can, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, I need some of that. I'm going to buy that. Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. Well, what happens? He was thinking the Holy Spirit was a power that could be bought or sold. Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit is God. Holy Spirit is, is God that indwells us, that controls us. It's not the other way around here. And there's no personal gain here. It's for the body of believers. We have God's Spirit indwell us and those gifts so that we can um, have unity and encourage the church. Spirit rules over us, not the other way around. Now, we all know Peter, right? We know how blunt Peter is. We know how bold Peter is. We know Peter doesn't just limit his words. He just puts it right out there. And if you really want to know what Peter says there, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You, okay. In our language, it might be something like that. To hell with you and your money. Peter just really laid it off. <laughs> to hell with because that's what he's saying here. To hell with you and your money. Quit thinking about the spirit like this. You can't buy it. Now he goes on to say this. In verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this weakness and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Now, Peter, as you recall, 
These are similar words that Jesus told Peter back in chapter 13 of John, where Jesus was washing the feet in the upper room. Remember? Washing their feet. And Jesus comes to Peter, Simon Peter, and he said, isn't it interesting? He was Simon Peter, and we're talking about Simon here. That's interesting. I just saw that one. Lord, do not wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, what? What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand. And I bet you in Acts, he gets it now. Because Jesus says, um, but Simon says, Peter says, Lord, not my, he says, Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share of me. But then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not just wash only my feet, but my hands and my head and everything else. And then Jesus says to him, he who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every part of you. For he knew that he was to betray him. He knew he was going to have sin happen, everything like that. So could it be, could it be that Simon truly was a believer and Peter is telling him, you know, you're off track here, just like Peter was off track, right? It could have been that. Um, he was a believer, but he was just outside the will of God because Peter did not attempt to cast out a demon at that time, did he? Didn't do that. So I don't know. We don't really know what happened to, to Simon here. We don't know, but we do know this. Peter tells him to repent and to pray. Well, at this moment, in when he didn't do that. He didn't, whether he repented or not, probably not, because he did not pray in humbleness like we know Peter has. But instead, he... Um, he asked Peter to pray on his behalf. He says, uh, 24, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come about. In other words, pray that the consequences won't happen to me. I used to do that in, when I was a kid in high school. I was a believer, but not a very serious one. It'd be like, oh, I didn't have time to study God, so just help me pass the test. <laughs> you ever do that? Sometimes he would, and sometimes he wouldn't. For I didn't have very good, I wasn't very smart, so most of the time he didn't. But Simon felt a conviction, but not willing to humble his heart. He felt the conviction, but not enough to humble his heart. Second Corinthians 7, 9 to 10, we've seen this one before. <clears throat> As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffer no loss through us. A godly grief produces repentance. Sorry, I, I'm sorry, basically because I got caught, right? I'm sorry, but a, a godly grief is a true repentance and a turning around. Simon just said, Peter, pray for me that that stuff doesn't happen to me, okay? So we don't know what happened to Simon. Church tradition says that he went off the deep end and became a dangerous false teacher. We don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But it is possible that he did repent and get his heart right with God. Um, so Peter, whether he baptized him, whatever, and he followed him, you know, we're, we're not going to know everyone's heart. 
It's really, we hold up the truth, we hold up scripture, and it's God's spirit that leads someone into the truth, okay? But we do know in verse 25 that they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, and they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The Samaritans, God's word goes out to those horrible half-breed Samaritans. Look at that, okay? So Simon is an example of maybe he's a wheat, maybe he's a, a weed in the wheat field. We don't know. But let's take a look at the Ethiopian because he's got a little bit of a different thing because our outward behavior is going to reflect our, our faith or not. True faith has an obvious change of behaviors. The Ethiopian... In verse 26, now, Philip, like I said, the town is like on fire for God, casting out demons, everything, people getting saved, wonderful things happening. It's, it's the, the apostles come down and just celebrate more. The church is expanding and everything. It's a, it's a hotbed of just revival every night. God says, Philip, get up and go. Pack it up. Get out of here. And he did. Today, how many? No, we wouldn't. God, what do you mean go? Look what I'm doing here. I can't leave now. This thing's on fire. Look, what do you mean get up and go? He didn't even hesitate. God says, get up and go. And what does he do? 27, and he rose and went. And he went on the road that that God had told him to go on. Two roads went down to this area he was going. There were two roads on how to get there to Gaza, from Jerusalem to Gaza. I love this. And the Spirit told Philip to go on the one less traveled. Okay? That seems kind of foolish. Foolish to leave, foolish to go on this road that no one's going to be on. What's happening here, God? God's ways aren't our ways, are they? Not our ways. So who does he meet on this road, but this Ethiopian eunuch who is in charge of the treasures. He had great authority. I mean, he was a wealthy, he was a mucky muck, a, 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 you know, and he's traveling on this road less traveled, probably because of who he was. He didn't want to go down a more popular route. Now, if we go back in history, with Queen of Sheba was the one who came and saw Solomon's temple, because he had heard about Solomon and how great he was and everything like that. And the Queen of Sheba says, oh, from Ethiopia, I need to go there and see if this is true myself, how great a king this Solomon, this Israelite king is. And history books tell us that when she stepped on shore, and she went, and she arrived there in Solomon's kingdom, the Israelites there, and saw the, the magnificence of it and saw how well the people were taken care of, she realized that this was truly a great king. And she spent time there. Eh, did they get pregnant? We don't know. We don't know if some of the Ethiopian, we don't know. We don't know. Makes for a good storyline, though. But for whatever reason, she took back with her some belief, some Old Testament stuff, some, some possibly truth, some scripture. 
And through time, maybe it made its way through to this Ethiopian. This Ethiopian eunuch was on a pursuit to know the truth. He wanted to know. So he packs up and he goes hundreds of miles away to Jerusalem. It says he was coming back to, from Jerusalem from worshiping. Doesn't it say that? He's coming back from worshiping. He had come to Jerusalem to worship in verse 27. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet of Isaiah. So maybe when he was there, he bought a scroll, which was very expensive to have a scroll. He bought Isaiah, and he's reading it. Um, did he understand the language he was reading it in? We don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but Philip, again, was very bold to go up to this chariot. It was very wealthy, and God told him to do it. How many times have God told us, hey, go talk to that person? <laughs> yeah, more than once, right? No, they're not going to, no, I can't, no. Ooh, and you get that knot in your stomach. And what? How many times? He didn't even hesitate. He goes boldly up to this chariot to speak to him. And what does he hear the man doing? He hears the man reading Isaiah. It was very common in the ancient world for people to read out loud. And when he heard what he was reading, he knew, he knew that God had given him a prepared heart. All right? And he asks him, do you, do you understand what you're reading there? And he says, oh, how, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Whoops. Um, we can read scripture, and the best way to do it is really prayerfully read scripture and ask God's Spirit to, to you know, help us to interpret it. And that is huge. That's huge. And we grapple with, we come back with it. And sometimes it's good. Many times it's good to get talk to other people about it. What's going on and everything, or to see what the commentaries or other insights and stuff to really dig into it. To dig in, to get an understanding. You know, Ethiopia, what was going on? Queen of Sheba, what's happening here? Sometimes we really need to kind of dig in and get deeper into that kind of thing. So it's a good thing. This man, this Ethiopian, was, had a heart and was trying to find God. And he's reading Isaiah 53. Philip meets him there on common ground and starts explaining Scripture to him. And it's all about Jesus. And he told them about Jesus was this Lamb of God and what Jesus has done. The focus is on Jesus, on Jesus and what he did, and then on our need. Sometimes we get it backwards where it's like, what's our need? Oh, I need Jesus. And it's like, well, that's a quick fix. But if we can get it more like, this is Jesus, this is who he is, and he did that, whoa, I really need that. So we find out. That the Ethiopian believes, and he is baptized also, okay? Here's some water. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and get baptized. Let's do this, okay? And they do. Um, when the Ethiopian said that, um, you know, he, he pretty much pronounces that Jesus is the Christ. He recognizes him as doing that. Okay. And he went on his way rejoicing. Then all of a sudden, poof, he's gone, right? Philip's gone in a mysterious departure. 
Similar things happened like that. Remember in John 6 where the boat all of a sudden with the disciples, poof, they're on land. Okay, poof, he's here. God's doing things to get his church going out there. And Philip started preaching in more Gentile cities. So the battle is really still being waged. It really is. And a whole lot of this stuff really hasn't changed. We may dress a little different and stuff, but God is still spreading his church. He's still collecting until the whole fold of the Gentiles are in, okay, until the world knows and has heard about Jesus. It's not going to come to an end yet, but it's getting close, all right? We need to be evangelists. We need to be the light. We need to continue on with changed lives. Um, Because until he takes us home or comes and gets us, whatever, it comes first, we're going to keep going, aren't we? God, thank you that you are a God that empowers us, that we have nothing to be afraid of. Help us not to miss an opportunity to share you, to speak the truth to somebody. May you be glorified. Amen.